boy, we got a weekend ahead of us coming. Woo, I tell you, it's another privileged space. And we're going to talk about and demonstrate and testify to hope. It's not an easy subject to communicate. I've given quite a bit of thought to the eight-minute segment that I'll have to try to bring it home for those that are there. It's part of the reason we do the series that we do every year where we pick the theme of the Christmas program and look at it for two weeks. It's mostly for my benefit. I need to get my arms around a subject in such a way that we deliver it in a way that's understandable, that's meaningful, that's deeply impactful, like it should be. Seems like it should be the easiest thing in the world to talk about a basic premise of the story and the narrative of God, but we all struggle with that, do we not? To take, take a moment today and just try to describe hope to somebody. It's not easy. It's hard to define. It's pretty abstract. I got, a, I got a text this morning. I said, hey, Mike, here's your friendly weekly 9.20 a.m. run-through reminder. We, we have a run-through at 9.20. Also, just a reminder that the team needs to head out ASAP to set up at Jerome for the Christmas program run-through. It's a bunch of people already over there setting up for the run-through this afternoon. We're hoping to stay on track with time. Well, what does this person mean? To, it wasn't mean-spirited. It was, it's, it's, it's true. It's wonderful. Like, it, we are. We're trying to stay on time. And a few of us jeopardize that more than others. <clears throat> and we're hoping to stay on time. What's that mean? Wishing that we're going to stay on time? Wanting to stay on time? Uh, ho hoping? Is there transcendence in it? Uh, when we say we're hoping... It, it typically means that we're wanting or wishing for something to happen that's probably not going to happen. We're going to need some extra help from somewhere. So we say, hope. I hope this, it's probably not going to happen. I hope it's going to happen. It's easier to define no hope or hopeless, right? That's, 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 hopelessness is pretty concrete, Right? You got to get your car, uh, uh, you got to drive and pick up this person, and you got to be there in five minutes, you're late, or things are going to really go sour in a hurry. And you're, you're halfway there, and your car starts smoking, and you pull over, and you look at your watch, and there's 30 seconds before you have to be there. It is hopeless. You don't, in that moment, you don't say, I hope I get there in time. No, it's pretty concrete. This is a hopeless situation. So when we say we hope, there's, a, there's still a margin of possibility, but we know that it's kind of up in the air. And so we say, well, I hope that something comes about that makes this happen. Hope is peppered throughout the Bible, it's explicitly so in the Old Testament. It, it's hard to read without finding the words that refer to hope. Look at just Psalms itself, a short little segment, even in the center of Psalms. Psalm 31, be strong and take heart, and you who, all you who hope in the Lord. Psalm 33, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Psalm 71, for you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. Psalm 119, you are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. I wait for the Lord, says in Psalm 130, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. In the book of Micah, uh, when things are just crashing, miserably crashing around 
uh, and in and within all the Israelites, we hear Micah just, just pressing on this idea of hope. He says, uh, all, he goes, all this is, he describes what's going on. He says, but as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. And then, of course, fairly familiar verse in Jeremiah 29. You know this. We refer to this because it gives us hope to hear God say through the prophet Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Again, the context for all of these is usually rapid, widespread deterioration. There is no hope, yet the prophet's and the psalmists have hope. It's definitely transcendent in this context, right? You get the sense that this hope is dependent upon something beyond the circumstances. And it's usually very specifically hope in something. Did you catch it? In a manner of speaking, the promises of God. We hope in his word, in his faithfulness, in his plan. And he has promised his people that he will protect and guide and flourish. It is in the word of God, the promise of God, that we hope. The bi biblical hopes are hopes in something. It's hard for us to get a grip on that because, as I said earlier, when we use the word hope in our sort of earthly kind of down here circumstantial context, in everyday common language, hey, hope that goes well for you. Hope your travels go well. Hope you get a good grade. Hope that works out. It's not really connected to anything. It is more wishful thinking. Hope you get better. Hope you win. Hope that doesn't happen. Difficult, but we can't miss. It's unmissable. Hope is a core thing in the Judeo-Christian narrative. In very rudimentary terms, our closest usual approach to biblical hope goes like this. This God that we cannot see shows signs in sometimes in personal ways in our, in our past of being powerful and amazing. We read about him, we experience him, we hear about him in different ways, that he's a provider and a protector. And we say, maybe he'll come through for me in the ways that I'm in need. And he's my last shot. That's as close as we come to biblical hope. We're, we're trusting in God that maybe he'll come through. We need to remember some things about hope to take it beyond that. It's much, much richer than that. I'm hoping to get through these four things this morning. Where our hope is anchored, the ark of God within which this hope lives, this kind of ark, the astonishing future that's promised, these are all A's, by the way, if you're following along at home. 
the anchor, the ark of God, the astonishing future, and the advance experience of the astonishing future. Those four things. Let me start with the anchor, and I won't spend a lot of time on this because Adam handled it brilliantly last week. We talked about what do, who do we hope in, and this week is a little more toward what do we hope for. Isaiah turns the corner for this. Isaiah, you read Isaiah and you think, this guy, where the other prophets were thinking 10 years in advance and being informed about things, somehow God was able to speak to Isaiah about things were coming. Hundreds of years Isaiah is a prophet that sits right on the hinge. Like he was feeling something else coming. Listen to him. He's an Old Testament prophet. He said, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Who isn't, he isn't even close yet in terms of his incarnation. He says, I will put my spirit on him. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, all the distant lands, the nations, the islands will put their hope. Isaiah turns this hope to a person, a Messiah, a future deliverer. And in the book of Hebrews, which there's all kinds of places you can look. I just settled on Hebrews chapter 6. We have the commentary on that hope who has now arrived. The writer says, we, I'm starting in the middle of verse 18, we who have the hope set before us, in the context, this is Jesus, may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters, it, hope, personalized, Jesus enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where man normally cannot go. Only the priest goes there. And with great fear and trepidation, Jesus goes. Our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He goes and we are to follow him in there. Jesus is the grand fulfillment of the promised blessing that God gave his people throughout the Old Testament, namely Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to provide my presence to you. I'm going to give to you. I got a future for you that is amazing. You're going to have children and land. That was the definition of blessing for the Old Testament. You were blessed by God if you had children and you had land. And where did you get children? From your wife. Sarah is barren can give no children. Where do you get land? From an inheritance. He had none coming. There was no hope. God says, you can hope. I'm going to bless you. My presence is going to be with you. I'm going to build a future that is beyond you. In Jesus, we have the culmination of all of those promises. We have the undeserved blessing and confidence in the presence of God. We follow Jesus. We're on his arm. He takes us into the holy of holies and introduces us to God. His resurrection reveals a whole nother world an internal existence we knew very little about in the Old Testament, from the Old Testament. 
Jesus was dead for three days as he rises, he doesn't come back to life and then die again. He raises to new life and invites us to follow him into eternal presence with God beginning now. The blessings, the promises of God find all of their fulfillment right here. Hebrews writer again in chapter 10, verse 14, 19, and following. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy, those who choose to faithfully trust him. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, right? Do you see this symbology? This is the Hebrew writer saying, look, Jesus is the curtain. He is the pathway. He is the way into this restored relationship with God. And since we have this great priest over the house, that it was the priests who did that. Jesus is the final one. He says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that brings, that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. This is who our hope is anchored in. It's where our confidence is. It's, it, he is how we begin to understand there is something else going on here. And it gives us this purity, this forgiveness, this newness. I audited some Bible classes when I was in college. I was an engineer <clears throat> that didn't want to be an engineer so much. <clears throat> and so I was taking other auditing classes, things that I enjoyed. And in this class of biblical ideas by Dr. Currid, he set up this question. He said, given the choice of walking into the presence of God or being escorted into a cage with a ravenous, huge, angry tiger, which would you choose? He said, without Jesus, the tiger, far and away, far and away. He described it better than I could. God is this blindingly bright light, the most intensified, purifying heat, a consuming fire, the Old Testament says. Anything that is of any kind of defiled or corrupt, will be burned away in the presence of the pure and holy God. Nothing unholy can come into the presence of God. Nothing that even has a, a, a hint of unholiness can come into the presence of God. You walk into the presence of God, apart from Jesus, you are obliterated. You have a better chance with the tiger with Jesus. We find a warmth that is undescribable. With Jesus, we find a peace that is unattainable. We see 
beauty that makes beauty ugly. With Jesus, we are not obliterated. We are home with God. That's Jesus. Our blessing of never-ending merciful presence and permanence. The Hebrew writer again. I'm just reading verse 18 again, but I add my commentary to it. Hebrews says that says 16. We who have the hope set before it, we have fled to. We have taken hold of. We have taken refuge in. We have found safety with the hope set before us. And because of that, we are greatly encouraged. We have this hope, this awaited promise, this unambiguously resolved issue of separation with God as an anchor for our soul. And they finish this way. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Jesus is our anchor. When God says, I promise you a future is better than anything you can imagine. We look at Jesus and we go, Oh, he keeps his promises in a big, big way. And Jesus shows us there is so much more going on. Which leads us to the ark. The ark of God. Something much bigger is going on, and Peter is clear about this. In his first letter, at least the one we have on record, in the first chapter, he starts right into it. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. He has given us new birth. He has given us awareness, entry to a much bigger context, into a living hope, a true hope, not a wishful hope, an unassailable hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. We see a much bigger picture here. I mentioned Micah before, and if you read the first six verses of Micah, he is just describing a horrific sight in Israel. They are so far away from God. They're worshiping the wrong gods. They're falling apart socially, interpersonally. And he says, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. Read the, no one, we rarely read the context of Jeremiah 29, 11. It's unsettling. We know Jeremiah 20, 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You know what the verse right before that says? Basically, I'm paraphrasing, in 70 years. In 70 years, I'm going to give you that. Then you will call on me, And come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. What's implied here is, very literally, you might be calling and praying to me before then. I'm not going to react for about 70 years. You got yourself into this mess, and you're going to suffer the consequences of that. I will listen and react in 70 years. 
But at that time, you will seek me and you will find me. Listen to that promise. You will seek me and you will find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, because they weren't at that point in time. They were going through some motions. I will be found by you and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you and I'll bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Yeah, we love that verse that God has a plan for us and a hope for us and he's gonna protect and provide. Not so much the in 70 years part. The Apostle John writes, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, total life, an arcing bigger than life you realize life. This is the confidence, you could say hope, we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Do you hear the context there? If you ask me for something, in your little world, I'm not as responsive. When you ask me something about the bigger arc, my bigger narrative, the bigger story that's going on, I will answer you. (laughs) You got to realize our hopes are typically constrained to our circumstantial contexts. What do we pray about? What are we hoping for? Quick, make a list of 10 things you're hoping for. I bet they're about the circumstances of your life. It would be for me. But when you ask me for the things that are of my will, that are of my context, that are in my arc, we are cranking together. There are times when he won't be found. He won't seem to be listening. The responses seem inadequate to us. And what happens? What happens to us when we pray for that same thing so many times? When that relationship that we prayed and prayed and prayed would would go well or be healed is broken, hopelessly broken. What happens to our hopes when those prayers go unanswered? Our hopes begin to vanish. They they disappear. Unless they're rooted in something much bigger than the circumstances. We tend to go wrong here, even in our evangelism, even as we try to express hopes and prayers for other people because we answer them and we comfort them in the circumstances, right? I hope that works out for you. And this is a kind and sincere invitation. But we realize, no, there's much more going on here. And we have to invite them into that bigger narrative eventually. What are we inviting people into? When you invite someone to your supper table, when you invite someone, someone that's, that's far from God, hasn't found their way back to him, when you, when you invite someone to, to go to the, to the uh, to J. Jira ministries with you or to bloom with you or, 
or, or whatever, to a game or to church, what are you inviting them into? Possible circumstantial improvement? We get sucked into that. That's what they want. That's what we want. We've got to somehow learn how to invite people into something much bigger than circumstantial improvement or, or even human progress. People have made their way in life to a steep drop-off and a cavern that is uncrossable. And the cavern is the stuff of life. It's a broken relationship. It's a lost person. It's a, it's a death. It's a broken dream. And we come up along beside them and what do we say? What we should say is, there's a bridge. There's a, there's a whole nother world that you cannot see right here. There are, there are ways across this and through this Trusting God, hoping in God isn't simply for this cavern to go away in our life. I'm going to read the Psalms that I read to you at the beginning and do a more literal translation for it. The English struggles so much to try to carry the original um, Hebrew forward for us. This is what these verses would more directly be translated to in English. Instead of the word hope, which <laughs> it is not all that helpful to us. Listen, be strong and take heart for those who, yachal, wait in the Lord. Notice, the Lord turns his eyes to those, kavah, anticipating his certain love. Do you feel the difference already? Do you feel the depth of that, of that concept apart from what we typically understand hope. Be strong and take heart. Those who wait on the Lord, those who are anticipating. The two words, kaval and yakal uh, and kavar, one is to, to wait, just like it's what you do. You wait. The other one is how you feel. You anticipate. There's something going on deep within me. I'm anticipating what God's going to do. For you have been my anticipation. You, you have been the tension of waiting in my life, sovereign Lord, since my youth. You are my refuge and my shield. I wait for you. I anticipate the Lord. My whole being anticipates. And for his word, I wait. Kava, kava, you call. Patiently, uh, let me read Micah 7. In the Lord. I search, I wait for my Savior, and my God will respond to me. Biblical hope is not waiting for what we want. 
but knowing God is progressing a bigger story, an awesome arc, which includes a certain and astonishing future in store for us and all of the broken things. There is something that's going to happen at the end that's going to result in you being the you that you were intended to be and the broken stuff of life not being broken anymore. It's called shalom. It's called all things back the way they were supposed to be. The hopeless, lost, wasted things of this world are not so in God's great ark. They are in our context, but not in his. He's not done. He might not even get started on that brokenness in your life until you're gone. That doesn't mean that's the end of the brokenness or for the brokenness. There's this super great scene in the very final chapters of the Chronicles of Narnia. Emeth is a character from, basically, I'm going to shorthand this, from the, the, the enemy armies of God. But he's a devout follower of the wrong God. His name is Tosh. You could, you could maybe sort of allegorically consider it to be like, you know, the opposite of God. Evil, the evil God, the wrong God, the bad God. But Emeth is a, is, is a sincere character devoted to his understanding of the truth. He was brave in the face of his own God. They, they had this opportunity to walk into a space with that God, and everyone was afraid to do it. And Emma said, I'll go. I'll go. It's our God. Whatever happens to me, live or die, I'll go. I want to know. I want to go. He goes. He ends up in Narnia. He doesn't know where he's at. He thinks he's in the land of Tesh. This is him. I looked about me and saw the sky and the wide lands and smelled the sweetness, and I said, by the gods, this is a pleasant place. It may be that I've come to the country of Tesh. And I began to journey into this strange country and to seek him. Went over, it's a beautiful place. He's seen all these wonderful things until, lo, in a narrow place between two rocks, there came to meet me a great lion. This is the metaphor, the allegory. This is... This is the hyper, this is Jesus. It's not Tosh, it's Aslan. And he describes him as, you know, I'm trying to get shorthand. It's just amazing. He's wonderful and terrible at the same time. It's just, you can't even get your arms around it. It's beauty. But I fell at his feet and thought, surely this is the hour of my death. For the lion who is worthy of all honor. It was clear to him, just like it was clear to the Magi. When you come into presence of Jesus, there's no, there's no question. Whoops. Oh, this is the right one. And he says, I'm, in, I'm, I'm dead. I've served Tosh all the days of my life, not him. Nevertheless, he says, it is better to see the lion and die than to be the emperor of the world that I had lived in and never see him. What's going to happen? What is Aslan going to do? The glorious one, Aslan, bent down his golden head and touched my forehead with his tongue and said, Son, 
thou art welcome. It gets better. But I said, alas, Lord, I'm no son of thine, but the servant of Tash. And he answered, child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. What? Now, this is just an allegory. This is just a metaphor. But can you, can you feel the beauty of what C.S. Lewis has written here? He's showing the very truth of the scripture that the future that we imagine, no matter how broken and misguided we may have been, Jesus reverses it emphatically and completely. This is what we are in store of, for this is the big ark. We hope with the same certainty and power of the resurrection. We hope with the same certainty of the power and, the, and of the resurrection for shalom. That future for me and for you and for the brokenness of the world is as sure as the anchor that we have in Jesus. As sure as he showed up in the flesh, God showed up in the flesh, was crucified, dead, buried, raised again to new life, is as sure as we are in all things being put back the way they should be at the end of God's story. Is that good? Is that good for now? I'm at minus 46 seconds. And we're hoping. We're hoping. I was going to tell you about a few things that we do enjoy now. So let me knock them out very quickly. First of all, that knowledge of shalom being certain in your mind brings an internal strength to you now. Can you feel it rising? The certainty, the anchor, and the certain astonishing future bring strength. That's one. We get an early start on the transformation of our mind and our body and our soul. Paul says we don't lose heart. Outwardly, we're wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. We get in advance. Eternity doesn't happen start when we die in Jesus. It starts now. We have work to do in the circumstances. <laughs> this is going to also blow your mind. Whenever you get a chance, read the whole chapter of Jeremiah 29. Listen to what he says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, who I'm going to come back and get in 70 years. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons, daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage so that they may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, don't decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. I'm up to something much bigger than this. Lean in. Be a part of that place. Bless them. Bring light and kingdom to bear. We have this opportunity within all the brokenness of our own lives and the lives around us. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. And finally, we have peace. Within us, not without. 
some of Jesus' final words at the end of John. Peace be with you, he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus gifts to us himself a soul level and dwelling of contentment that can be contained and attained in no other way. A role, and a role that is reserved for God, forgiving. We, we are given a role to be a, forgi- a conduit of forgiveness with other people. The core of the Christian message, the core of the Christian life, repaired relationships, grace and mercy where it is not deserved. Because I want you to be doing what I have done for you. We get to do all this in advance of the astonishing future. We live in the bowels of a magnificent football stadium and we can hear the amazing stuff that's going on up there. There's all kinds of people muddling about down here in the bowels of it. They're complaining and they're doubting. Most of them are deaf. They can't even hear what's going on up there. And one of the heroes of the team comes and sits down with you. Says, it's true, man. He's got all the evidence of having been played in this amazing game. He's got the, he's got the look in his face of, of accomplishment and success. He's got grass stains and burns and bruises. And he says, it is as amazing as it sounds. He says, I got to go back up there. And he hands you his trading card. And he gives you a uniform. It doesn't fit very well. It's too big. He says, I'm going to come back and get you for the fourth quarter. And you're going in for me. After he's gone, you're bringing truth and hope to those who start to hear. They hurt you. They criticize you. Your capabilities, they talk about your crazy uniform and how you're never going to be able to perform up there, even if there is a place like that. You're unfazed. You met the hero. You take a peek at your card. I know he was here. And you forgive them. And you notice you're growing into your uniform. And he's coming. Hey, church, this is your life. Live with the anchor that is yours in Christ, a promise as certain as Jesus himself. Live with the knowledge of a grander arc of God. Live with an imagination of an unimaginably astonishing future and live the eternal advance that is yours here and now. God bless you. Let's be the church. Let's do it. Help one another. This isn't a a solo sport. 